0: Thank you, Max, for fixing this up for us without impaling yourself upon it. There was a moment when I was a bit worried. We might have one less person in the congregation this morning. Thank you very much for the opportunity to come and share with you this morning. Um, I was instructed carefully to make sure that I could be heard. Um, during the course of my little address. I'm reminded of a time when there was a... Those of you who have done public speaking will know when people are listening or not um, and you sort of get a feel for it. There's one fellow there who was giving an address to a large group and uh, began to get the impression, a strong impression that not everyone could hear him. So he stopped his talk, <coughs> And he asked, um, can everyone hear me? And the person in about the middle of the, of the group audience said, yes, I can hear you, but I'll gladly swap with someone who can't. <laughs> <laughs> so if you can hear me and want to hear me, you, or if you want to hear me and can't hear me, put your hand up. If you don't want to hear me, well then you can swap with someone who wants to hear. Okay, so we come to our passage this morning in Mark chapter 2 verses 1 to 17. And um, two scenes from the life of Jesus. Mark is very brief in his description of these particular scenes. But they're scenes that are full of action. They are full of tension and they are full of controversy and uh, Mark invites us if we can to come and enter into those scenes once again. So but always a question I like to ask, don't always answer it all that well is, uh, well so what? What are the relevance of these particular incidents so long ago in a culture in a time so distant from ours what are the relevance to us? We who live in this post-Royal Commission of Investigation into child abuse, we who live today in a time when the freedom of religion is, freely, is being discussed at national levels across our community, um, when Christians are pressured to be quiet, when there's a great deal of pressure to say nothing in case someone is offended. Do these passages from such a long time ago really make any impact on this situation in which uh, we now find ourselves living in 2020? I'd like to ask two questions from this particular passage uh, as we go through. Hopefully it will be helpful in perhaps keeping the music stand from collapsing in front of me anyway. It's a very uncertain stand. (laughs) I feel very insecure having nothing solid to hide behind. Anyway, so the context in chapter 1 of Mark's Gospel, uh, he's been talking, Mark narrates how Jesus was preaching in Galilee. He was preaching about the kingdom of God and he was healing. We come into chapter 2 and in chapter 2 going into chapter 3 are full of some incidents in the life of Jesus which Many commentators call them controversial incidents. Incidents in which Jesus raised controversy. And these two passages, which we look at this morning, uh, are two that begin these series of controversy, controversial controversy stories. Okay? So the first one is about the healing of a paralytic. The scene... Jesus has returned to Capernaum. Jesus has been ministering in Galilee, as Mark points out in chapter one, and he's returned. And he's returned to Capernaum. It seems that Capernaum was probably his base for ministering in Galilee, and um, people hear that he's back in Capernaum. And as has become very quickly the situation with Jesus, many rush to hear him. People crowd to the house where they found out that he is speaking. Um, it's very crowded. It's most likely it could be in Peter's house, Peter, the, the, the one to be apostle later on. But many gather. And Mark tells us that there's this large crowd which is packed into the house so much so that you can't even get close to the door. And so uh, how full it is. Jesus is speaking the word to them. And speaking the word is basically what Mark is saying. He was preaching the gospel. He was talking about the kingdom of God. He was talking about repentance. And he was talking about belief in the gospel. Jesus is speaking on these themes to this packed house, full standing room only, as we would put it. As talk, as Jesus is talking and people are listening, dust and dirt begin to fall upon those who are gathered around Jesus. And they hear a sound and a noise and people look up and above them in the roof is suddenly the, the sunlight is appearing where it should not have appeared. And there apparently there are some people trying to dig a hole in the roof. And people are coming dirty before the dust is falling. Now houses in Galilee at that time are most likely, the roofs were made of strong beams placed across the outer walls, which were then overlaid with smaller beams that ran the full length of those other beams. And then on top of that, uh, there were reeds that would have been placed over top of those, bea- those rods, or those smaller rods, um, and then there would be mud and there would be plaster. And that would constitute the roof. Um, So you could dig through it, they were flat and you could access most of these roofs by stairs on the outside of the house. As the hole widens, who knows what Peter or the owner was thinking about at this particular stage, perhaps going through whether he had insurance up to date, whether he paid the latest premium. as the hole is widened, and the man the paralytic is laid down lowered rather through the roof um, Jesus, as we read in the text, seeing says something which is rather unusual. it strikes me as unusual anyway, and I think it would have struck the crowds as being unusual there and this is where I made a colossal mistake getting up here and thinking I could read this without my glasses anyway. Here we go. Um, Jesus, seeing their face, fo- Jesus seeing their face, says to the man as he's laid before Jesus, "My son, your sins are forgiven." Now that strikes me as strange, because I think certainly the the man, the paralytic himself, had one thought in mind. He heard of Jesus, he had heard Jesus is the one who heals. His four friends who lowered him into the room had one thought in mind, that is, this is Jesus who heals, we will bring our friend to him and he will heal him. Um, I'm sure the crowd who had known about Jesus would have been expecting Jesus to heal him. But Jesus sees something else here and he addresses a deeper need. He says, my son, your sins are forgiven. It seems to me that the need was patently obvious and it wasn't forgiveness, it was healing. But Jesus says, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now, there were within the group, within the audience, within that crowded house, some scribes or teachers of the law, those who taught, who taught the law. <coughs> um, they were professional men uh, of the time. Who uh, were professional copyists? The scribes can be traced back to the time of Ezra. They had a long history in the life of Israel. They were legal experts, and most of them were Pharisees. And they were incensed at what Jesus said. They were offended and said, so This is, even the sinner saying, This is absolutely blasphemy. Who can forgive sins? Only God. Now Jesus was not calling himself God but Jesus was saying something that only God could say. My, your sins are forgiven. Only God could forgive. Sorry. Uh, where was I? Yeah. Okay. We'll close in a prayer. Um, we will uh, get back on track. Only God could forgive sins and they were right. But here this man is saying my son your sins are forgiven. Who? does he think he is? Jesus, who discerns the thoughts of people, just like God does, discerns their thoughts and says, okay, why are you murmuring in your hearts about this? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or you are healed? Go take up your mat. Then he goes on, let me and let me... Let me read it. Which is, um, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit. That this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up your mat and walk. And then he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up and took his mat and walked in full view of them all. Sin and sickness were in Jesus' time and even before that linked together. And there was a linkage there which is coming out here in this particular passage. We find it in the Old Testament. Um... And then I said, in Jesus' time, um, this linkage between sin and sickness was made. Jesus had healed a man. Um, That had caused controversy. He had healed a man near the sheep gate in Jerusalem. He had healed him. He later encountered him. And he said to this man, See, you are made well. Watch out that you do not... You sin no or else worse before you. A little bit later on, when Jesus and the disciples were walking through Jerusalem, they passed a man who they recognised as being born blind from birth. The disciples, reflecting this view about sin and sickness, said, Lord, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? Jesus goes on to say further about that. But it's a topic which, unfortunately, as interesting as it might be, we can't really... Uh, spend time on this particular issue. There is a link between sin and sickness, but it's not quite as straightforward as might be seen. Sometimes sin does cause sickness, but there are other times in which it does not. It's a topic which, as interesting as it may be, I shall have to put aside for another occasion, perhaps. A big issue. Which is easier? To say to the man, get up. And walk, or to say your sins are forgiven. But Jesus then makes the link, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, I say to you, take up your bed, or take up your mat, and walk. And he did. He demonstrated in a tangible way, in a way that could be seen by all in the house, that this man's sins had been forgiven. So the first question. Uh, I want to ask about this particular passage is the question, who? Who is this Jesus? And the answer from the incident itself is that Jesus is the one who with the authority of God forgives sins. This thing is wobbling around. Max, can you... You haven't got any duct tape in the car, have you? you put me in a very unstable position. Okay, here's the one. That's the first question, who? And there will be an exam at the end. Um, You don't get morning tea unless you answer both questions correctly. Who? Jesus is the one with the authority to forgive sins. An authority recognised belongs to God, but Jesus has that authority and forgives sin. So the second incident in this passage is the calling of Levi. And so the scene shifts. Now you can see Mark takes this, he tells us Jesus has been ministering on the the shores of the Lake of Galilee and he returns to Capernaum. And it sets the scene for us in verses 13 and 14. Once again Jesus went out beside the lake a large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. And as he was walking along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Levi um, was a tax collector. I guess it's a part of the history that tax collectors never been ones in high favor in society. I'm sure today we have very many honorable men and women who do their job, a necessary job, but in Jesus' time, Levi would have been among many of from Israel, from that area, who would have made a purchase from the Roman the occupying Roman force the right to collect taxes on behalf of the occupying forces. And Levi would have been collecting him for one of the Roman puppets, that is Herod Antipas. He would have been te- passing on this money to the to the um, to Herod. But the thing was that they got the right, they got the contract, if you like, to collect taxes, but they could charge what they wanted in regards to tax. And so they had a tended to have a very high markup, and so that instead of just performing a necessary function, and receiving a reasonable salary for all, they were able to sort of load on their own overheads plus a lot more. And so they were seen, they were, these tax collectors were despised because they were seen as collaborators with the Roman army, the Roman occupying army, and they were seen as being greedy and exploitative, asking more than what was reasonable in carrying out their task. So they were a despised group. But Jesus calls goes past this collect- and Levi would have been positioned probably outside of Capernaum on one of the main roads that leads from Capernaum, in which along past a lot of trade, and he would have been enforcing this collection of t- tolls from the people who are, the traders who are moving into Capernaum and moving out of Capernaum. But it's a strange choice. If you're looking for people who are going to win friends and influence people, you do not choose a tax collector. And yet that's the very person who Jesus, passing by, he sees in Levi, this man, a despised man, who had very little friends among, except in the general community, he sees in him someone who can follow him and he calls him. Now we're not told much about the incident. We're simply told that he calls him and uh, Levi responds, jumps up, and follows Jesus. The implication is that he left his business behind, which is quite a big cost for him. And we get some insight the impact of Jesus on Levi. The fact is that he has he gathers a large crowd of friends, or those who were his friends, into his house for a banquet, because he wants those people to hear about Jesus as well. But again, as in the first incident, there is controversy because the scribes see what Jesus is doing and furthermore they are offended at the company he keeps. And they ask his, uh, the scribes, probably looking in on this, seeing the kind of people, the company that Jesus kept, they ask him, they ask his disciples, why does your teacher, what, Eat with these kind of people. Now to have fellowship, to have someone to your home, to have them for a meal, you were saying who your friends were. And and Jesus is there. It was all right for Levi to invite these kind of people, but Jesus is there as well. And the scribes, the teachers of the law, are offended at this and ask, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? Now we know about tax, or, or just, uh, the tax collectors, were a despised group and it's hard for us to just capture the amount of um, disregard in which these people were held. But what about sinners? Well, sinners are probably is a reference here to some notably disreputable kinds of people. In other words, Jesus was keeping bad company. And the scribes are saying, this is not right, this is offensive. And in fact, he's probably eating with people who are regarded as ritually unclean. Jesus knew their thoughts. He was eating with people rejected by society at large, yes. But, and Jesus knows their thoughts and he replies with a proverb, which is, seems rather obvious, but he uses a common proverb. He says, those who are well do not need a doctor, but those who are ill. Then he goes on to say, I've come to call the righteous, not sinners. Now, um, we just need to pause a minute to, When he talks about righteous here, the word is being used when we would say ironical. And I think in some translations try to bring that out by saying, uh, I have not come to call those who think they are right, but with sinners, with these disreputable people. Um, I've come, those people who were self-righteous in their own eyes thought that they were all right. So Jesus says, answers the second question. You ready? Morning tea hangs on it. The first question was, who? The one who forgives sin. The second question is, why did Jesus come? And the answer is found in what Jesus said to the crowd, to the people, to the scribes. I've come to call... It's not a rhetorical question. (laughs) I've come to call sinners. Not the righteous, not the things, not the people who regard that they are right. Now, a, a ministry, an interesting feature of Jesus' ministry was that he went to the people who were willing to listen. Those who were satisfied, those who thought that they were right, in God's eyes, Jesus really did not have much of an impact on their lives. But he went to those who were willing to listen. He come The answer to the second question is, like, Jesus words himself, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Two questions: Who? The one who forgives sins? Why? Because He came to call the righteous. I'm sorry. You knew that, and I was wondering who would be the first <laughs> to pick it up. And you're all very good and most of you are attentive. I saw a couple nodding and you will not get any cucumber sandwiches at the end. I've come to call sinners, not the righteous. But how does this help us today? As I said, how does this help us in these changing times for Christians? In this post um Royal Commission into Child Sexual Abuse, Institutional Child Sexual Abuse in this time of increasing felt pressure to be quiet, not to offend. How does that help us? This story from such a long time ago help us today. Well, Jesus is still calling sinners to follow him no matter what governments may decide about religious freedoms and all the complex issues associated with that, no matter what the media may comment on and how it may comment, no matter what general public may think, Jesus has not changed. Jesus' purpose has not changed. And he invites us to join with him. Alright, could you hold that please? I want it back at the end. In case I've got to do this again. (laughs) Good. I'm going to get to work on the duct tape on this thing. As I look through the book of Acts, I'm sorry, as I look through the New Testament, and especially Acts, and as I read through church history, I see that Christianity is a missionary faith. But it's interesting to ask, and we would probably, because if we've been spent a long time within church circles, if we're familiar with the New Bible at all, uh, we would tend to accept that and just say, "Well, that's part of the way things are." but I find myself asking from time to time, maybe you have. Why is Christianity a missionary faith? Because in the time in which Jesus came and spoke and lived and died and rose again, in the time of the early church, there was nothing quite comparable to it. There was nothing in which Christianity could model itself on. The Jewish faith from which Christianity came out of was not an organized missionary faith, and so in jesus this is, um, what we may tend to take for granted yet it's interesting to ask the question why is it so? Why is it that this Christianity is a missionary faith, which it is? The answer is found in this incident the answer is found in the founder of Christianity, namely Jesus Christ. And we have looked today at two incidents at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. At the beginning of it, who is he? He came to forgive sins. Why? I came to call sinners to repentance. And that's important. Um, If we look at the end of Jesus' ministry now and we think of when uh, the words that Matthew records for us. Matthew 28. I'm sure many of you may know this by heart. Let me read to you from Matthew 28. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, this is just before he ascends to the Father, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. Perhaps familiar words to many of us. But here are sort of the last words of Jesus. We have looked at an incident at the beginning of his ministry, we look at these words at the end of the ministry. Now if we consider, and I'm going to finish up here, don't worry, I'm not going to work my way through the whole of the old New Testament, interesting as that may be, perhaps. But let's consider very br- the opening words of Acts, the book of Acts, which is a very a sort of a summary history of the early church. The opening words of Acts. And Luke writes, in the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. The implication is that the second book, which is the book of Acts, is about what Jesus continued to do. Why is Christianity a missionary faith? The answer goes back to what Jesus saw and did in these incidents here in Galilee, who forgives sins and who calls sinners to repentance. As we look very briefly through the book of Acts, we see the church gathered in Jerusalem. We see it spreading out to Samaria, north from Jerusalem, then to Syria, into Asia Minor, now Turkey, and then into Greece. Today, 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 in 2020, March 8, Christianity is a faith around the world. It's a faith that has is to be found all around the globe. We go back to these two incidents when Jesus and to that incident where Jesus calls Levi and said, "I have come to call sinners." That, I would suggest, is why we have, we live, we are part of a missionary family. It began with Jesus. That was his purpose. And that purpose, I would say, has not changed. He still is calling sinners and he invites you and I to join him in that purpose and so whatever else may be swirling around us in our community and responses of governments and commissions and we need to make those responses as Christians but whatever else may be going on there is a a set rock-solid bedrock purpose which goes back to the very beginning of Christianity And has continued down through the centuries to this moment, Jesus said, I came to call sinners. And he invites you and he invites me in our praying and our giving to be involved in his purpose. Thank you so much for letting me share this morning. God bless you.